Well, greetings and welcome to the show. I'm so glad that you're here. And I want to say right from the jump that I am doing a little bit of an experiment here. This is my first time recording a video from home in my home office. And so we'll see how it goes. There may be a little bit of a, you know, not great video quality or not quite as good, or maybe the audio isn't right where it should be. So uh, there's a bit of a teething process here. So you'll just have to forgive me for that. Today, uh, also, I should say in the beginning, if you believe in what we're doing here, perhaps you have watched Trinity Radio or you've just watched my response videos and you'd say, you know, I really do think this is necessary because there are a lot of atheist videos out there that need to be responded to. And I think that uh, the way this guy's doing it is uh, worth my time to watch um, and might be worth my time to support. Uh, and maybe you're an atheist out there. I get I get uh, responses occasionally from atheists who say, um, I think a lot of the atheist arguments and videos out there are bad. And I appreciate that you're here because it helps to kind of raise the level of discourse. Now, that sounds self-congratulatory, and I wouldn't say that about myself. But you, some of you atheists have said it. So maybe you want to support what we're doing counterintuitively. If you'd be interested in that, you can either click in the top right-hand side of this screen, and there's a little eye icon, and that'll give you a way to uh, go over there. If you're listening by audio, it is, uh, let's see, patreon.com slash Trinity Radio, patreon.com slash Trinity Radio, and you can give, there's a lot of uh, free content on there. Uh, some of it may not be of interest to you, so some of it might, so don't become a patron, a patron just to get the free content, although it is there. Uh, even I think a couple of my books are there for free, so um, as an ebook. So, uh, but don't 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 become a patron because of the free stuff, because you might not like the free stuff. Only become a patron if you believe in what we're doing, and you're the kind of person that thinks if I was hanging around with Braxton, uh, I might buy him a cup of coffee once a month. Well, if that's the kind of person you are, then yeah, uh, give me a dollar, give me five dollars, give me more dollars if you like. I won't send it back. Uh, but uh, I really appreciate you clicking in today, and we're gonna check out uh, this guy that's on the screen right now. And um, seems like a friendly guy. I think he goes by the moniker Friendly Atheist or something like that. Maybe that's somebody else. Maybe I'm confused. The name of the channel that I got this video from is The Atheist Voice. Now, in case you think that I am just cherry-picking people that whose arguments are like the low-hanging fruit, uh, the first uh, one of the first videos I did was a response to uh, Rationality Rules and Cosmic Skeptic and Matt Dillahunty, and I had a live public debate with Matt Dillahunty. So I'm not, and those people are the people that some think are the top shelf uh, in terms of YouTube atheists. And so I'm not trying to cherry pick the low hanging fruit, but. Uh, I'm going after the ones who have the biggest channels and are saying something that I think needs to be responded to. And according to some atheist videos out there that list the top atheist YouTubers, uh, this guy's close to the top, uh, along with some others that I've already responded to. So um, that's who I'm picking. And he gives us 20 short arguments for God's existence. And we're going to see if during the course of these 20 short arguments, I give up my belief in theism and become an atheist. We're going to find out whether these arguments are all that compelling. I mean, remember, when you talk to Christians, we've got all these major theistic arguments that have been around for uh, hundreds of years, if not thousands of years, and uh, we have uh, people working on these things all the time, and, and we've got uh, uh, philosophers and even some scientists dealing with these things. And uh, so, so we're going to find out whether these arguments that we're being presented with uh, can knock all those down and hold hold up the uh, the flag for atheism such that it would be convincing to a reasonable thinking person such as myself. So I'm going to check that out. Uh, and I'm going to begin by uh, letting him know that I'm taking up his, his challenge. He says here in this video, which was 10 tips for winning a debate, he says this as uh, advice to people when they're providing arguments for or against God's existence. Let's hear what he has to say. Explain it to me like I'm a child because I don't think about this stuff. I don't get it. So make me understand it. And I promise you that if you make me feel smart, like I've thought about this stuff and I know what you're talking about, I'm more likely to, to want to side with you. All right. So that's great. So he says, and by the way, I'm not saying this to make a joke. I actually do think that this is good advice. Um, uh, preachers have been told in seminaries for years that, uh, at least in certain contexts, pick out a 10 or 11 year old kid on the front row and preach to that kid and then you'll hit everybody. So I agree with him that we want to make things understandable. And that's one of the things that I try to do, maybe sometimes more successfully than others. But he says, uh, I have a hard time understanding some of this stuff. So put it in a way that I can understand. All right. Sounds good. Let's try to do that. But let's listen to what you have to say first and see what we think about it. There's no evidence. 
Okay, the first thing he says is there's no evidence. Well, this is an assertion, after all. Uh, some atheists are willing to say, you know what, uh, there is evidence. Uh, we all have the same information before us, and that can be used as evidence for or against God. The question is, is the evidence compelling? And I like what Mike Winger once said in his debate with Matt Dillahunty as well. He said, um, my job is not to convince you. My job is to present compelling arguments, and your job is to be convinced by compelling arguments. If that's not exactly right, Mike, sorry about that, but something along those lines. Uh, and there really is good evidence. The question is whether or not you think that that evidence is compelling when framed the right way. And of course, on this channel and on uh, similar channels, we've tried to present really good arguments from almost every field of inquiry. We've got philosophical arguments, historical arguments, uh, arguments that are inferences from science. We've got arguments from personal experience. And by the way, not all of those are as laughable as some people like to make them out to be. We've got all kinds of arguments for God's existence and specifically for the Christian God once you consider the historical case for the resurrection and, of course, the experience arguments. So we've got all kinds of arguments and um, evidences and reasons to believe. So, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know what, quite what to say about this, except that this first point is merely an assertion. Uh, he's just knocking it down. He's not actually taking the time to deal with these arguments and to show what's wrong with them. And until you do that, we should look at a claim like there's no evidence as just a mere assertion. That's all it is. And uh, that which can be, uh, what is it that Hitchens used to say? That which can be asserted without evidence can be rejected without evidence. Although I've mentioned several uh, arguments that you could consider here. So let's move on to a second one. God doesn't stop the evil in the world. In fact, if you read the Bible, God committed plenty of it. Okay, so, uh, well, let's go ahead and hear number three as well. Drowning just about everything alive, not a sign of love. Okay, so the, what I want to do here is, uh, rather than repeat something that's been said elsewhere, there is a very uh, attractive um, uh, Christian apologist out there who looks a bit like Jason Statham. I think he probably hears that a lot. And uh, in one of his best videos, he responds to this criticism, which is really the argument from, it's an argument from evil. But there, that's a very nuanced uh, issue. And I am going to get through the rest of this video, but I want to give you a, a little bit lengthy answer to this uh, particular question about evil and why doesn't God stop evil and what about things that happen, uh, issues of judgment. And so what I'm going to do here I've been looking for a video where I could respond to that, so this is my chance. So I'm going to let this really good-looking apologist that looks a little bit like Jason Statham go ahead and answer that question now, and then I'll see you on the other side. Why does God allow bad things to happen in this world? Usually this is referred to as the problem of evil, although sometimes it's referred to as the problem of pain or the problem of suffering. And when an atheist tries to show that God does not exist on the basis of the problem of evil, it's called an argument from evil. Famously, the pre-Christian hedonist philosopher Epicurus put it this way, Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? The argument hints at the idea that if God exists and is all-loving and all-powerful, then evil, pain, and suffering shouldn't exist. But arguments from evil come in two basic forms. The logical argument from evil attempts to show that it is not possible that an all-loving, all-powerful, all-knowing God exists so defined and evil, pain, and suffering exists. Therefore, since pain, evil, and suffering do exist, God does not exist. But this argument has pretty well lost its appeal with most working atheist philosophers today. For example, William Rowe says, Some philosophers have contended that the existence of evil is logically inconsistent with the existence of the theistic God. No one, I think, has succeeded in establishing such an extravagant claim. Indeed, granted incompatibilism, there is a fairly compelling argument for the view that the existence of evil is logically consistent with the existence of the theistic God. But an evidential argument from evil is probabilistic, and while it's much less ambitious in terms of its claims, it's a little more difficult to deal with. This argument isn't set forth to show that it's impossible that God exists, but that it's less likely that God exists given so much pain, suffering, and evil, particularly gratuitous evil, from which no other good seems to come. Britain fires its first H-bomb to join the United States and Russia as ranking atomic powers. Why would God allow for pointless evil when he could stop it? 
Rowe puts it this way. Premise 1. There exist instances of intense suffering which an omnipotent, omniscient being could have prevented without thereby losing some greater good or permitting some evil equally bad or worse. 2. An omniscient, holy good being would prevent the occurrence of any intense suffering it could unless it could not do so without thereby losing some greater good or permitting some evil equally bad or worse. Therefore, 3. There does not exist an omnipotent, omniscient, holy good being. But first of all, is premise 1 really true? Let's look at it again. There exist instances of intense suffering which an omnipotent, omniscient being could have prevented without thereby losing some greater good or permitting some evil equally bad or worse. How would Roe even know that unless Roe were God? So now that you kind of understand the landscape of the discussion, what are our options? How have Christian thinkers answered this question? Theodicies have to do with God's justice in light of this sort of thing. And people have given a lot of theodicies to try to address this question. And I can't go into all of them, so I'm going to speak very generally. And I know that my philosophy friends aren't going to like that very much, but it's the best I can do in a short video. But largely, we could go about it in four ways. The character-building theodicy posits that God created a world that he knew would have evil in it because experiencing pain and suffering helps to build our moral character and integrity. And the Bible does seem to teach this. In Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 4, it says, And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. So the character-building theodicy does enjoy biblical support. No question about it. The heaven theodicy says that even though we're experiencing pain and suffering in this world, at least for believers, we're going to experience one day the bliss of heaven, and this will all have been a veil of tears. Revelation 21.4 says, And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. The Reformed theodicy says that God created a world with evil, pain, and suffering in it because he's going to use those things as a part of his redemptive plan and ultimately to glorify himself. On this view, God guides, ordains, orchestrates, and governs everything that happens, including the evil that takes place. Of this, Calvinist scholar John Piper says, This all things includes the fall of sparrows, the rolling of dice, the slaughter of his people, the decisions of kings, the failing of sight, the sickness of children, and so on and so forth, to the culmination of the crucifixion of his son. Now, the problem with these three answers alone is that while they have truths in them, for example, on the character-building theodicy, God is using pain and suffering to build our moral character. We are going to have every tear wiped away from the believer's eye, and God is using pain and suffering to bring about his redemptive plan. If left alone, if left where we are right now, God is still the ultimate source of evil in this world. But how could that be of a good God? As far as I'm concerned, that is still something incompatible in these theodicies alone. But fortunately, there's one more answer that we haven't discussed, namely the free will theodicy. Many of us believe that God created man with the genuine ability to choose among options, that he has free will. And further, it seems necessary to believe that real freedom is necessary for real love. Without real freedom, you don't have real genuine sacrifice to give of yourself for the good of another, which seems to be central to love. Jesus said we're to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And it's not a very good fairy tale of love if I force my wife to marry me with a gun to her head. In fact, this makes perfect sense of the tree in the garden that skeptics think seems to be some kind of divine trickery. The tree afforded our original parents the opportunity to freely choose to obey God, sacrificing the fruit, or disobey Him and serve themselves by eating the fruit. This was all necessary so that real love relationships could be possible, which is what God wanted. The problem is that if you give man real freedom, you can't force him to freely always do the right thing. Are you trying to kidnap me? He's going to sometimes choose the bad. He's going to choose poorly. Thus, all evil, pain, and suffering, and even including natural disasters, ultimately is laid at the free choices 
of man, and everything good that happens comes from God. Yet God can use the pain, suffering, and wickedness that comes from free actions ultimately to build our moral character and integrity. And He will wipe away every tear from the believer's eye, and He is orchestrating all of this toward a redemptive plan, but He's not the source of the evil that takes place in this world. That's on us. And as for Rose's question of why God wouldn't prevent certain gratuitous acts that aren't going to be used toward some ultimate good, how could Roe possibly know that? Roe isn't God. Two final thoughts that are of the utmost importance. Though the free will theodicy posits that bad things that happen in this world, even natural disasters and disease, are ultimately because of the sinful choices of man, it would be wrong-headed for you to assume that if something bad is happening in your life, it's necessarily because of a particular wicked thing you did. Such would be to make the mistake of Job's comforters. Second, this is an answer to the philosophical, theological, kind of intellectual question of why a loving God would allow pain and suffering. But it doesn't address the emotional problem of evil. It's not necessarily a good thing to share this with someone when they've just lost a loved one, for example. It will seem too cold and clinical. For such a person, just pray with them. Be open to listen and let them know that you love them. Nevertheless, arguments from evil are, in my opinion, the best atheists can do. But as you can see, Christian thinkers have plenty to say to the question of, why would God allow bad things to happen? Now, you'll also recall that, uh, I hope you enjoyed that, by the way, that is a, uh, that's my favorite video on my channel, but it was released before my channel really got the attention that it has right now, which is still not as much as I'd like. Again, share those videos around, but if you'd like to share just that video, if you'd like to just share that specific uh, video, um, the, the, the shorter one on just the argument from evil, you can go to my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Braxton Hunter and type in um, something like, why does God allow bad things to happen to people or something like that. And you can find it there and share it around. It's, again, my favorite one. But uh, he also says something here at the end. Uh, his number three was, uh, why does God drown everything on earth and that sort of thing? Well, uh, a couple of things about that. First of all, I am a person who, um, though I am, I, I don't, I'm a, I'm a, I don't know person when it comes to the age of the earth. I lean toward an old earth perspective. However, um, I would say, and we'll come back to that in a little bit, but one, one thing I would say is that even though I specifically am a, a believer that the whole earth was flooded, uh, there are conservative, theologically conservative evangelical thinkers who are highly academic, who believe in a local flood. So there's more nuance to that discussion than maybe than this guy's aware of, or at least that he's presenting here. But secondly, even if we did just assume that the whole earth was flooded, as I think it was, and that everything on it died except for Noah and his family, uh, there's a couple of things about this. First of all, you need to understand that there's two aspects to God's nature that we need to consider when we're looking at an issue like this. One is God's love, but then the other key is God's justice. And if you hold both of those things together, uh, then you get an answer to a lot of things uh, like this. For example, um, justice is a good thing. In fact, a lack of justice is a bad thing. So take, for example, Adolf Hitler. Let's just say that um, Adolf Hitler was captured and we decided as a, uh, you know, as a conglomerate of nations involved in that, that we would just uh, give Adolf Hitler a hug, tell him not to do it again, forgive him, love him, because that's, of course, the right thing to do, right? And then just let him go and, if, and, and let him live his life. I mean, after all, isn't that the most loving thing to do? Well, it might seem to be, I, I would even argue that this isn't the case, but it might seem to be an expression of love, but it certainly would not be an expression of justice. And because it was an expression of, was not an expression of justice, because justice was not done with respect to Adolf Hitler, then actually what we have there is a bad state of affairs. We would say that that was not morally good. That was bad. So uh, when we consider God, uh, a good God, a maximally great God, would not just be a God of love, but he would also, if he's going to be a good God, would be a God of justice. And he would act justly so that sin is punished and uh, evildoers receive uh, what they deserve, right? So that, that justice and love is both very important. And so you have to keep both of those in mind when you're going to consider an issue like the flood. Now, you might say, well, yeah, but what about the children that died in the flood? Surely there were children and, and people that were not yet at a point to be wicked people. Well, remember, if you're going to do an internal critique 
of Christianity, then you can't accept certain aspects of it. Like, well, maybe there's a God, but then I disagree with what God did here. You've got to put on the clothes of the Christian worldview and do an internal criticism and take a look at what the worldview itself says if you grant that it's all true. Now, again, you don't have to grant that it's all true, but to do an internal criticism, you do have to grant it all. So, for example, if we were looking at the Lord of the Rings series, if we're going to talk about whether or not the uh, ghost army in Return of the King that came through and and basically won the battle for everyone, uh, whether that that particular thing made sense in light of other things in the story, you couldn't just say, well, okay, I'm going to grant that all these other elements in uh, the Lord of the Rings series are true, but I don't believe in ghosts, so that doesn't serve as a good answer. That's not what you do. You put, you get yourself into the story. You grant that, okay, we're in a world where apparently ghosts are possible and all these other elements are there and do an internal criticism. Of course, outside of the story, you don't believe in anything really in the story is actually happening or, or many much of it is possible. That's not the point. The point is if you're going to do an internal criticism, you, it's, you've got to get internal. And so if you're going to do an internal criticism of the flood, then what you've got to do is you've got to say, okay, there is a God who is a God who is a God of love and and a God of justice. Now, does the picture make sense of that, given that that's true and the other elements in the story are true? One of the other elements in the story is that God is a good, just God, and that there is an afterlife, that there is going to be more beyond death. Internally, that makes sense of this in an incredible way. For instance, um, when we consider uh, death, like the death in a flood, for many people, particularly secularists, because this life is all we have, YOLO and all that, the fact of the matter is death seems like the, one of the worst imaginable things. Uh, maybe there are certain types of living suffering that are worse than death, but many people think that death is like one of the worst things because it's the finality, it's the end. And so um, so we, we, we you know, uh, all the debates about this aside, we have uh, death penalties and things like that for people that produce a lot of death and kill other people. Uh, but if you're a Christian, then you realize that death is not the end. And the, this, the, whatever pain or suffering might be experienced in a community because of the sins that exist in that community, uh, then, then yeah, these children may have died in a flood. And I'm not trying to minimize that. For every person, we're going to one day die if the Lord does not return in our lifetime. For these children that died in the flood, you know what's going to happen? They're going to wake up in the arms of a loving Savior. And if they were a part of a culture that was uh, engaging in pagan uh, idolatry, for example, and they might have grown up to be a part of that culture that engages in pagan idolatry, well, guess what? Now they're going to wake up in the arms of a Savior and... Uh, at least on my understanding of scripture, they're going to live forever in the presence of a wise and loving king. And so this actually turns out to be benevolent given the situation and the circumstances on earth at the time. Now, obviously, I don't want to ever see children uh, experience uh, pain and suffering and things like that. But you know what? The fact of the matter is... I don't see everything from the perspective that God does, and I don't know what he knows. Uh, there's a particular YouTuber that always loves to ask the question, well, would you rather, uh, if you were in charge of the flood, would you rather have uh, God just poof everyone out of existence, kind of like a Thanos snap, or would you rather have them drown in a flood, which can be obviously a great deal of suffering involved there? Well, if it were up to me, I would probably poof them out of existence. But I hesitate to answer the question because I, I'm just a guy, you know, living in Evansville, Indiana. And I don't have, I'm not privy to the facts about all these things that God is privy to. So all of that is very important. But the key element to this is you've got to keep both God's uh, existence as a God of love and a God of justice in mind when you consider these things. So let's continue. The opening lines of the Bible are factually wrong. Okay, is that true? Well, the opening lines of the Bible are, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, whether that's true is what's up for debate. So if you're going to, that would be circular reasoning if he was going to use that as evidence that, or an argument that God does not exist, right? Um, so so the, the, the circular reasoning aside, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and assume that what he's actually talking about, uh, sorry, I got to take a sip here. This is, I'm at home, so this is Diet Coke out of a mason jar. That's how we roll. But um, I'm going to assume that he's talking about the whole first chapter of Genesis. He probably he may even mean the first few chapters. But if he's talking about the first chapter of Genesis 1, uh, Genesis chapter 1, I don't know how many times I have to say this, but um, 
there are multiple genres uh, in the Bible. So if this is your first time watching a video that I've done, it's a bit like pointing out a bookshelf with some books of poetry, some books of history, some books of, uh, you know, uh, bio that are biographies. You know, you've got all these things up on the wall and someone points at that and says, should that be taken literally or should that be taken poetically? Well, it's a difficult question to answer because you're pointing at a bookshelf where there are a lot of different books and there's no real way for me to know which book you're talking about. I don't know how to answer that question because there's a lot of books. I can't make a blanket statement like that. And in the same way, if you're pointing to the Bible, the Bible is a collection of a lot of different books and a lot of different genres. And I've said before, you've got poetry, you've got apocalyptic, you've got narrative, you've got historical, you've got the Gospels or Greco-Roman biography, you've got biography, you've got all kinds of stuff there. And so when we go to Genesis chapter 1, one, what's before us is to figure out what genre of the Bible is this? What genre of literature is this? Should we consider this? By the way, you can maybe hear my dog barking. That's Indiana. Um, we named the dog Indiana. Um, but uh, you, you've got these different genres and you've got to decide what genre is that exactly. Um, and so people have struggled even long before these you know this argument about science and how it squares with Genesis 1 in the modern times way back in church history you've had arguments and discussions over how we should understand Genesis 1 is it a literary framework is it how the young earth creationist takes it which is apparently how this fellow takes it which is that it's more of a straightforward history of what happened is it uh, is there a day age theory going on is the gap theory true is uh, what else could we have uh, is it is it like John Walton's literary framework where it's you've got this material versus formal creation there are all kinds of options on the table and these are not like get out of jail free cards for christians um, many christians will be happy to just tell you that it's a straightforward historical reading um, i take a literary framework view not the same one that john walton does but you see this is a nuanced discussion there's a lot going on there and when we're talking about how ancient near eastern peoples particularly those coming out of slavery in Egypt would have understood a message that Moses is trying to give them about how certain things like the, these different elements of creation are not gods, but God created those things. How Moses would have expressed that is an interesting question. And it's, as far as I'm concerned, a very important question. But the idea that you read it woodenly just really goes back to this issue that a lot of atheists come out of fundamentalist sort of, and, and I mean fundamentalist in probably not the most uh, happy way, but very wooden readings of the text um, where it's it's like, oh, everything has to be taken literally, even though much of the Bible is not meant to be taken literally, much of it is. Uh, but these kind of discussions are not had to that level. And then when they become atheists, they become fundamentalist Christian atheists where they still look to the Bible and they read it all as flatly and woodenly as possible. And so these are all things that need to be kept in mind as we consider a question like this. So is that a good reason to reject? Um, now, notice that the name of this argument is 20 Short Arguments Against God's Existence. So, first of all, even if the Bible was completely false, and it's not, I take the Bible to be the Word of God, but even if the Bible was completely false, and you were absolutely right here about the opening lines of the Bible, and you think they're factually wrong, and let's just say you're right, you still wouldn't have shown that God didn't exist. You might have shown that, you wouldn't even have shown that Christianity isn't true. Because as I've said many times before, what is necessary for Christianity to be true is that God exists and God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, even though I affirm inerrancy and affirm scripture, the fact of the matter is you wouldn't have even shown that the Christian God doesn't exist. All you would have shown is that those words are wrong, but you haven't even shown that. Again, this is really just an assertion. You haven't shown us why. Let, let me be the young earth creationist, straightforward historical guy for just a second. Um, show me what's wrong with those opening lines of the Bible. Are you prepared to show me? Until you show me, this is just an assertion. And I want to say this, and I, I, I want to be as friendly as I can with the friendly atheist guy. But the fact of the matter is, often what I get as I've gone through now, spent like six or seven videos now going through these atheist videos, what I'm getting is, uh, if it's not mockery, it's just assertion after assertion. And the, the, the bigger the channel is, it seems like the more it's off in that way. Now, it's not that way with guys like Cosmic Skeptic and Rationality Rules. And so I love jumping into those discussions and uh, answering some of those criticisms. But I just got to point all of this out to you that if you're a person who's on the fence and you're looking at videos like this, and this is the sort of thing that knocks you off the fence, I encourage you to be a, a free thinker and rethink all of this and notice this for the sort of um, sort of flat reading of it that it is, that 
a good argument against God's existence is that this guy disagrees with something in Genesis 1. I, I want to know what the syllogism is there. That's very strange. Why should we believe the rest of it? Prayer has never fixed anything physically impossible. Why won't God heal amputees? Okay, so at this point, what I want to do is I want to point to another uh, YouTuber because in response to this very issue of this video, um, uh, Cameron Bertuzzi actually made a response. And so I'm going to go ahead and click over to Cameron Bertuzzi. Um, he's quoting, I think, Swinburne there, but let's let him talk about the question of why God won't heal amputees. By the way, this is a uh, five minute and 18 second video that Cameron produced, and I'm just giving Giving you the end of it where he kind of wraps everything up but i encourage you to go back and check out that video and i will put it in the in the uh youtube uh, uh information section whatever uh so you can go check that out too and i encourage you to do that and if you're not subbed to his channel sub to his channel but here's what cameron has to say end quote to sum up the famous benson study on intercessory prayer doesn't show anything about the efficacy of prayer much less about the existence of God. And asking why God won't heal amputees, Hemet is simply assuming that God has never healed amputees. But that's obviously question begging. And even if he weren't begging the question, which he obviously is, this is not an argument against God's existence. God is in a unique position to know exactly what's best for us, even if from our limited perspective, it might not seem like it. All right, guys, thanks for watching. If you enjoyed, you're welcome, Cameron. I really enjoyed it. And uh, now we're going to go back to the video currently in play. And um, we can see that there are major problems with this claim because he's just making assumptions. And of course, there's more to it that Cameron covered there. Let's go on to the next thing. There are thousands of gods you don't believe in. What makes yours any different? Where you're... What makes my God different is that I'm ready to defend the evidence for the existence of the Christian God. Um, so on the surface of it, if I just gave something like the Kalam cosmological argument, yeah, a Muslim could take that argument and run with it and say that's evidence for uh, Islam insofar as Islam is a theism. And so you have uh, evidence for theism. Uh, but then I would follow that up with a resurrection case. So if we were to take uh, the uh, gods that are purported by other religions in the world, we would look at them and I would claim that they have major coherency problems with most of them. Uh, the ones that don't, I think, are the major monotheistic religions of the world. And among those, you basically have Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And since uh, Christianity affirms Judaism and Islam, see, now here's the thing, Islam sees itself as coming after Christianity and uh, adding more to the story, you know, answering more questions, giving you the fullness of Allah. But what I want you to understand, and don't misunderstand what I'm about to say here, this would be a bad time for you to phase out. Uh, of those three dominant major monotheistic religions of the world, uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, all three, at least on paper, point to the God of Abraham as the one true God. That's very interesting, isn't it? Now, uh, I don't believe that necessarily we're all worshiping the same God because that God can be described very differently. And in my response to Sam Harris, I gave some reasons why I think that God, as described by Islam, is actually has major logical problems. Uh, so you can go check out that video and see why that is. But that then would leave the God of the Jews and the Christians. And of course, again, Christianity affirms Judaism, but then believes that the Messiah has come in Jesus. And we would present a resurrection case. Um, if the resurrection case goes through, well, then our God is the one that should be believed. You see, we're not just brushing off the other gods. Christian thinkers who are serious about why they believe what they believe have considered these other God claims. Myself, for example, I teach a class on major world religions in which we look at at least the major uh, religions of the world and how they picture God. Um, so so uh, the reason that we affirm the God that we affirm is because we see that it's logically defensible and makes the most sense. Christianity is the most defensible worldview. And so for that reason, we believe in this particular God that we believe in. Now, what I want you to understand again is we're on number seven here now. And so far, we still haven't heard a good reason not to believe that God exists. Why is it the case that just because um, there are a lot of different God beliefs in the world, that one of them can't be right. Is that really an argument against God's existence? Or is that just, I mean, that's not an argument for anything. I don't understand it. You could have perhaps structured it more as an argument, like why does God allow for this or something like that? 
But you didn't do that. And of course, the free will theodicy would answer that. So again, please, you folks that are on the fence out there listening to this, this is one of the biggest YouTube atheists. This is one of the champions of the cause. And I want you to notice how shaky this stuff is, how it just doesn't hold up. And I don't mean to be rude to you, the, the person who made this video. I'm just saying that this video currently has uh, 280,171 views. And I'm sorry, that, that means it's getting a lot of, it's making waves. And I just look at it and I shake my head and I think, what is going on in the world that this passes for an argument? Let's keep going. You're born essentially determines what you believe. Why should the truth be based on geography? Who the truth obviously is not based on geography. Uh, the, the, the truth, where you're born, doesn't change what the truth is. It's almost like he's saying what's true for, you know, Christians is in modern in the modern western world is Christianity. What's true for uh people living in Turkey and other, you know, Middle Eastern countries might be Islam or Judaism and what's true for other people. Yeah, th th there is only one truth about the matter. I think you would agree. We can't all be right and we might all be wrong. I don't think that we are, but the fact that there are a lot of people that believe a lot of different things and live in a lot of different places doesn't mean that the beliefs of a particular group of people who happen to, you know, overwhelmingly live in a particular place, uh, which isn't even necessarily true. I mean, do you know how Christianity is growing in China, for example? I mean, it's unbelievable. But, uh, but yeah, where you're born is going to set you up uh, to have a, a greater likelihood, at least in general, to accept the beliefs of the people that live in that particular place. Does that mean that the beliefs of this place or that place are false because people in other places believe other things or yours is more likely to be true because you live in a particular place. That's that makes absolutely no sense. Uh, unless is he wanting to say something like you only believe this Christians because you were born perhaps in the modern West. Is, is that what you want to say? If that's what you want to say, then that is to criticize the view based on how the view emerged. I came to be a Christian because I was born in uh, a largely evangelical region and to evangelical parents. Therefore, God doesn't exist. I mean, that makes absolutely no sense. That would not demonstrate that God doesn't exist. Uh, on top of the genetic fallacy, I mean, you know, the, as I said in the last video that I did, I may come to believe that the earth is more or less round because I read it in a comic book and reading things in comic books is a terrible reason to believe that certain things are true. But even if I came to believe the earth is round only because I read it in a comic book, I'd still be right, wouldn't I? So you can't criticize the view based on how I got the view. You've got to criticize the view on its own merits. Again, this isn't even a good argument against Christianity, much less is it a good argument against God, God's existence. Let's keep trucking. Who created God? And how does your answer to that make any sense? Okay, great question. Um, so what I want to do here is I want to run over to, um, you know, gosh, that that good-looking Jason Statham uh, look-alike apologist. He, he had a debate in which someone asked him this question. So <laughs> I want to go ahead and let him answer this. And then I want you to hear what Matt Dillahunty has to say directly after that. So let's hear this answer to the question of who made God. Lastly, you asked, what about the cause of that? Kind of like the old question, who caused God or who created God? If God exists timelessly, the only kinds of things that need beginnings or endings are temporal things, things in time. If God exists timelessly, then he needs no beginning and he just exists. Yeah, and I can actually chime in and help for half a second. So it's, I, I, I spend as much time probably talking with atheists about how to better, have better, better arguments and not make mistakes as I do arguing with theists. Um, the Kalam cosmological, cosmological argument was specifically uh, designed to avoid a circular pleading in the original cosmological arguments mm. because the original was everything has a cause for its existence and then of course the response is well what's God's cause so now you rework and the Kalam became everything that begins to exist so that you can exclude God because God didn't begin to exist it still has the problem that you're pointing out at the the second layer but it was designed to avoid that and that's can you demonstrate that that was the original Kalam no not the original Kalam the Kalam the, was designed the original cosmological argument well, I, I'd have to go look up okay. their version. Maybe you could send that, that to me later after. Sure, yeah. and I could be wrong, but that's the way I was taught was that there were so the there is no the cosmological. There's that's right. A category of cosmological arguments, and a version of that began with everything has a cause, 
and then okay. the flam was everything begins. Right, this line's a little bit longer, so we'll do... Okay, so uh, what I want you to see here is that this is such a bad response to uh, the, the existence of God that even people like Matt Dillahunty and others recognize that now. Um, it was one of the major problems with the God Delusion book, and I think it's one of the things that Michael Roos actually pointed out about Dawkins and about that book, and it's one of the reasons that Michael Roos said something like, uh, things like that make me embarrassed to be an atheist. I mean, really, that's how bad it is. So uh, Dillahunty's reason for saying that's a bad response was terrible uh, because I, I like Dillahunty. I, I hope he would consider me a friend or at least a friendly adversary. Um, but the fact of the matter is his response to it is, well, because there was originally this, this other cosmological argument that said whatever exists needs a cause. And so Christians came and reworked that to whatever begins to exist. I'm still waiting on a demonstration of that, and I think it's fair to say that though I asked him to send me the the uh, evidence of that, I never got it. Um, and so that's just something that got touted around, and frankly, since the debate that I had with Dillahunty, I haven't heard any atheists saying that. Maybe that resolved it because they can't find evidence of that. Uh, but he was right to point out that the Kalam cosmological argument says whatever begins to exist. But he says it still has a problem at the deeper level. In other words, the problem is still there, but Christians have tried to circumvent it, and perhaps Muslims have tried to circumvent it by adding this begins to exist. Whatever begins to exist needs a cause. But as I said in the response there, the reason that whatever begins to exist, the reason that uh, God doesn't need a cause, and you don't have to worry about this question of where God comes from, is because our physical universe is a universe of space, time, and matter. And whether there's a multiverse or whatever else, it's space, time, and matter. And so, whatever serves as the cause of all space, time, and matter coming into existence would exist outside of space, time, and matter. It would be non-temporal or timeless. And the only things that require beginnings and endings are things in time because beginning and ending are temporal terms. Whatever exists sans the physical universe would be timeless and have neither beginning nor ending. How does your answer to that make any sense? It's just plugging in what we understand would have to be true about the nature of reality. So that, again, uh, you, you heard it from Matt that uh, he said, I spend as much time telling atheists how to make better arguments. Uh, this is not a good argument for some reasons that Matt gives that I don't necessarily agree with and for the reasons that I've given you. And then Michael Roos has his reasons. So the, atheists just need to stop with this. I understand that to some people who are new to this discussion, which I don't think this guy is, that seems like a really good uh, question to ask. And it is a fair question to ask. But when you hear the answer, it's an answer that makes perfect sense. Uh, and it's time to move on. Just we need to learn to do better with our arguments. All right. So let's go on to the next thing. Pediatric cancer, unconditional love, shouldn't come with a list of conditions. Okay, so uh, first of all, uh, we need to understand that the pediatric cancer issue, that is an issue that I think is addressed in the um, uh, problem of evil, arguments of evil discussion that we've already had and all those kinds of things. I will say here that... Um, so whenever we think uh, in theology about God's... Uh, about certain acts of evil, we can say this. We can say that... There are two senses in which we can understand God's judgment. On the one hand, there is active judgment. On the other hand, there is passive judgment. Uh, anytime anything bad happens in the world, it is in a sense indirectly a passive judgment of God on mankind because of uh, sinful humanity. It doesn't mean that when a particular person is experiencing pain or suffering that it's because of something they did. But what it does mean is uh, because mankind fell... Um, all of creation fell, and as a result, bad things happen in this world. But it doesn't mean that God is actively bringing specific the, every specific bad thing that happens as an act of judgment. It's just a passive judgment because of what we did. Um, and I do think that when we experience anything bad in this world, sickness, pain, illness, whatever the case may be, um, that that is, uh, in part, a part of a passive judgment of God. An active judgment of God would be something like Sodom and Gomorrah. And again, you can't have too much of a problem if you believe that justice is a good thing that a maximally good God would have so that we wouldn't just give Adolf Hitler a hug and then let him go. We would bring some kind of a judgment um, on him. Then you understand that this is perfectly acceptable. So active judgment would be where God is bringing a specific act of judgment on a person or group of people. Now, 
the thing is, the problem I have is when certain Christian ministers say that when something specific happens, like uh, Hurricane Katrina, well, that was God judging, uh, uh, you know, uh, New Orleans for uh, the sins of homosexuality and abortion. Well, that'd be a really strange place to judge America for those particular sins, New Orleans. I mean, that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Um, secondly, how does the particular Christian minister know? We don't know which acts uh, or which uh, things might be uh, active acts of judgment on mankind. We don't know that. And so whenever someone says that, they may be impugning God with something that God did not uh, did not actively bring that judgment. So that's something to keep in mind. But the passive judgment, the bad things that happen, do happen because God allowed us to make free will choices and all of creation fell as a result of that. Now, you can say, all oh, that's nonsense. And that's fine. You can believe whatever you want to believe. But the fact of the matter is, this is one of the answers that, that Christians give. And, and it's an internal answer to how is it? Because listen, all we have to do to show that God is not necessarily non-existent or that there's some contradiction in his nature between being all-loving, all-powerful and there being evil in the world is to show some philosophical defeater, some answer, whether we know it to be true or not, that would actually make sense of his allowing certain things. And we have that with these arguments from evil. And we have that in understanding the difference between or the the uh, the at-once-ness of love and justice. And we have that with understanding passive versus active judgment of God. So um, it doesn't, as I said before, answer the emotional problem of evil. Um, and we need to keep that always in mind that we don't necessarily need to give these clinical cold answers to people who are in the midst of having lost a child or experiencing pain and uh, you know heartache over a loved one who's died. And I don't in any way want to, want to diminish that. Um, but uh, there are intellectually satisfying answers, though they may not be emotionally satisfying. So let's keep trucking. Every single supposed miracle gets debunked eventually. Somehow, the Ten Commandments... Okay, every miracle gets debunked eventually. Again, assertion. I need, it, I need a reason to believe that that's true. And guess what? Even if that were true, which it's, I think, demonstrably not true. But if it were true... First of all, you understand there are atheists out there. Let's take the most obvious miracle of all, the resurrection of Jesus. You know, there are actually atheists out there who will tell you, don't try to come up with a competing hypothesis for the resurrection. And the reason they won't was because we can use uh, the criteria of historiography to knock down almost every, every one so far, every competing explanation for the facts surrounding the resurrection of Jesus. So right there off the bat, we've got a really great miracle that hasn't been knocked down yet uh, by science or whatever else you want to present. But there are plenty of, I mean, again, check out Craig Keener's massive work on miracles. Fantastic work that gives you a litany of, of examples that you can work through. But again, we didn't get any of that from this guy. We just got the claim. But guess what? Even if you were right and there were no uh, uh, real miracles, does that mean that God doesn't exist? Now, again, I'm not, I'm not, I believe that the Christian God exists and miracles do happen. But I'm just saying just logically, would that mean, would that serve as one of your 20 short arguments against God's existence? No, you could still have some sort of a deism where God's just not doing anything. Uh, I don't think that's the case, but I'm just showing you that these things are so bad. I mean, just so shaky that, um, and again, I don't mean that as offensive toward this particular person, but I do want to punch back pretty hard because I think these things are things that move people toward atheism. And it's just silly. Again, it's really just silly. Left off, don't rape people and slavery is not okay. Okay, so I've played uh, clips of myself in two cases and Cameron Bertuzzi in one case. I could play you uh, a couple of clips on this, but I won't. I'll just point you to uh, our Trinity Radio two-part episode on slavery, and we cover... Uh, all of the relevant biblical material on slavery there and rape. Um, this is just the, uh, he's trying to, what he's trying to indicate is that the Bible seems to um, allow for uh, or condone slavery or rape. And, um, and we deal with all of that in two, we have one hour on slavery. I don't believe that there's um, God endorsed slavery or allowable slavery in the Bible. I do believe there's servanthood. And then we have an hour on uh, quote unquote rape. There is, there are stories about rape in the Bible, but the question is, are there examples where this is a good thing or condoned or allowed for uh, in any way that would tell us that God is encouraging this? Um, and I don't, I don't think there is. I, we walked through that. Uh, so I just encourage you to check out that two-part uh, deal on slavery on Trinity Radio. And I think you'll, you'll find, I hope you'll find the answers you need there. 
So. Oh, but again, would that show that God doesn't exist? If he was right that there's a problem there, would that show that God doesn't exist? Again, I'm I, I am a Christian theist who affirms the inerrancy of Scripture, so I'm happy to tackle those issues and have done. However, lo just logically speaking, what would it show if you were right? It would show that the Bible has errors in it, which I don't believe. But in your web of beliefs, your belief in God and the resurrection of Jesus are more central to Christianity than, than even that. I mean, if God exists and God raised Jesus from the dead, Christianity is true, period. So this wouldn't even satisfy uh, what your claims are as it relates to Christianity, and certainly not as it relates to God's existence in general. Movies and music that honor God are just awful. Okay, so... Um, I'm going to agree with him here that there is a lot of bad Christian music and uh, Christian movies and stuff like that. If what we're talking about are the ones that come from Christian, um, uh, you know, recording companies and Christian movie production companies and things like that. But that is, first of all, I want us to bifurcate between stuff that is the contemporary, quote unquote, contemporary Christian music scene or movie scene on the one hand, and then just good Christian stuff that may not be part of that Christian entertainment world as well. I mean, obviously Christians have produced incredible works of art, incredible films, incredible music out there that may not go under the banner of contemporary Christian film or music, right? We need to understand that. Further, there is some stuff under the contemporary Christian music banner that is actually really, really good. Um, you know, I, and it may not always have the highest production value. Although I think the Case for Christ film is phenomenal. I think the production value is there. I think the story is great. I, I just love everything about it. And um, people might expect me to say that, as I as I uh, know uh, Lee Strobel, but I really do believe that. There are some where it's, it's a pretty good movie, all things considered, but the production value isn't there. Um, and certainly with music, there's great stuff. But uh, I'll tell you, right now on Amazon Prime, if you have an Amazon Prime membership, there's a movie about the life of Rich Mullins. He's the guy that wrote that song, Our God is an Awesome God. And uh, there's a movie about his life. Now, again, the production value, not that great. But the story um, is really good. And it shows you someone who was struggling with this very issue, who was uh, a, an artist who was struggling with having his own um, art form that he thought honored God and was good. And at the same time, trying to deal with the contemporary Christian recording industry and, and trying to navigate that. In a, this is a guy who had no interest in being rich. I mean, like uh, he, he wanted his accountant only to give him as much money as an average American made, and he never even knew how much money he, he got and spent a lot of his life working with Native Americans. Um, and so th this is a really, really great guy. And uh, guess what? This, this is going to be an unpopular opinion. But if you check out Third Days Live, it's on one of their worship albums, one of, one of their live uh, uh, versions of Rich Mullins' song, um, uh, Creed, which is the Apostles' Creed. It is fantastic. And if you're a Christian, go check it out now. Also, uh, just yesterday I remembered that um, uh, there, there's the song My Deliverer or the Deliverer or something. It was a Rich Mullins song that he never got to record, and DC Talk recorded it for the Prince of Egypt soundtrack. And it's pretty fantastic, too. And there's a lot of good Christian music out there. And there's a lot of good music by Christians that doesn't go under the banner of contemporary Christian music. But now, putting all of that aside, let's ask ourselves the question. Bad Christian music, does that mean that God doesn't exist? I mean, seriously, I can't even, I almost can't even say it with a straight face. You folks that are on the fence, come over to our side, come off the fence, because if this is the sort of thing you're dealing with, number one, bad Christian music in the 20th and 21st century is supposed to be an argument that, uh, that, God doesn't exist. Not just the Christian God, but that God doesn't exist. I mean, again, what's the syllogism for this? What, how are we going to put this into a logical form? I, I don't I, I don't know what to say. I mean, I think let's give him the benefit of the doubt. And here he was just trying to make a funny point about bad Christian entertainment. And if that's your point, great, fantastic. But as one of your arguments, I mean, come on. Um, I, I don't even know. I, I don't even know. The invisible and the non-existent look very much alike. Okay, the invisible and the non-existent look very much alike. Think about what you're saying there. The invisible, by definition, doesn't look like anything. It's invisible. 
So yeah, the invisible and the non-existent look very much alike. That's fine. But again, I don't think he's thinking this, but if we would go two or three levels deep underneath this statement, what we would get to is we should be able to have some visible evidence, some like something we could put in a beaker. It's again, that reliance on science. Um, but also I would say that oftentimes when we talk about a spaceless, timeless, non-material, sufficiently powerful um, personal agent that is a, a mind that serves as the cause. We're, notice with what I just said, I didn't just give you negative attributes. I gave you positive um, attributes as well. So those that needs to be considered. Obviously, if God exists as the cause of the physical universe, he's not going to be physical. And in that sense, we could refer to it as invisible. But that's not illogical. It's not that it doesn't make any sense. And again, the invisible doesn't look like anything. No hide-and-seek game lasts this long. Okay, so here what we have is a little bit of the divine hiddenness um, uh, argument, and he didn't frame it as an argument, but that's fine. So let's uh, let's let's say something about this. Now, when it comes to why is it that God isn't more obviously present? Why doesn't God show up and make a speech on the White House lawn or somewhere in the world every couple of years just to remind everyone that he really does exist and all that sort of thing? Well, um, understand that that would be if God wanted, if God's only goal was to demonstrate that he exists so that everyone would know, okay, he does exist. But that's not necessarily all that God's looking for. God is looking for people who want to enter into a relationship with him. And if God knows, and God would know, that in a world with this level of evidence, by the way, evidence from inferences from science and history, philosophy, um, personal experience, I mean, every physical object and concept in the universe can be used as a part of a case for God's existence that is compelling. As we saw in my video with Jacqueline Glenn, where I used her defecation dog as an evidence for God's existence. If in a world like that, we already have tons of evidence. When you say that God is hidden, I just don't find God to be hidden. I really don't. Um, and even granting, like if you wanted to bring up evolution and all that, I look at my hand and I'm like, this is clearly, this was, there was clearly intention that this is made to grip things. And I know that a lot of atheist scoffers want to say, oh, this is like the old, oh, just look at the trees, look at the trees. Don't they look designed? Darn right, they look really designed. And even if you took away all biological life, there is still uh, an incredible degree of fine-tuning in the physical universe to allow life to be possible. So, um, so there is so much evidence in the world for God, I just don't see it. I think you really got to blind yourself. Uh, to it. Uh, I think that's why Paul says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20 that the invisible things of God, his eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen through what has been made so that they are without excuse. People that don't believe have no excuse for not believing in the one maker God. He was talking about idolaters, but it works for atheism too. They don't have an excuse because it's so obvious. Um, so, I, that may be personally offensive to you, but I'm just telling, and I get it. There's a lot of messages out there that can be very compelling, but I'm just telling you, I don't get it. I don't see it. And you that are on the fence, I mean, come on, there's, it's really hard. Um, so uh, I, I don't even know what to say about this. Again, are we really getting a good argument uh, against God? Well, I think aside from the argument from evil, this is probably the best that atheists can do, the hidden, the hiddenness thing. But here's the thing. In a world like this, with all this evidence, if God is aware as he would be that, um, that the, the largest number of people would freely choose to enter into a relationship with him, now, it may certainly be the case that if he were to show up on the White House lawn every two years, that the largest number of people would recognize that he exists. But if he knows that in this world, with this level of evidence, that the largest number would freely enter into a relationship with him, then he's not required to give us more evidence than he knows is going to be successful just to meet our whims and fancies. Besides, it may well be the case that in a world where God was more obviously uh, physically, personally present, like making that speech um, uh, once every couple of years, that may actually turn people away. I mean, after all, Matt Dillahunty said, and I quoted in our debate, that he would still not worship that God. 
That, so, okay, well, if you're not going to worship that God, then this is all just smoke and mirrors. It means this whole thing is just, it just rings hollow because you wouldn't even believe. God's only required to give us uh, enough evidence. Uh, I don't know if he's required to do anything, but in terms of this argument and taking its its uh, thrust of it, God's giving us what is necessary for us to believe. Um, he's not required to give us anything else beyond that just to meet our whims and our fancies. God's overtures might actually be repelling to people if he was ever present in a in a in a way that was uh less you know that was more obvious like giving a speech so anyway uh there's more on that on the hiddenness argument out there i encourage you to check it out science explains so much of what we used to attribute to a god actually um we used to think things like that um the universe was in a steady state theory where it just has always existed. And of course, there are some people that still believe that. But ever since we discovered uh, the background radiation wave from the beginning of our universe, we now believe this universe is not past eternal. Now, uh, for philosophical reasons, as philosophy has advanced, that's science, but as philosophy has advanced, we understand that that would be true also if there is a multiverse of the whole multiverse. Um, so as we learn more and the level of design that we see, now we actually have better reasons to believe that we, as we learn more and we learn the numbers, we see how incredibly unlikely our universe's fine-tuning is. Uh, that the more we learn about science, the more we learn in philosophy, it actually fits very, very well with theism. And in fact, I, I, I see skeptics having to raise that bar of skepticism higher and higher and higher to escape uh, the incredible evidence that we have and retreat into the corners of skepticism. That's why uh, I have pointed out and pointed out on stage with Dylan Hunty that um, when uh, Mike Lycona asked him if it were written in multiple languages on the moon suddenly in Hebrew and Greek that God exists, would you at least believe something supernatural had happened? And he says no. And uh, Matt Slick asked Dylan Hunty if you saw someone in front of you part an ocean in Jesus' name, would you believe something supernatural had happened? And he says no. That is telling me that we're living in a day and age where skeptics have to raise the bar higher and higher and higher. Because while those, the point is not whether those specific examples have happened, um, the point is if they did happen, skeptics have had to get to the place where they would say something like, I wouldn't even believe if that happened because the evidence currently is so good. They're having to say, I don't believe in, in spite of the incredible evidence that we have from science and philosophy. So um, this business about science explains so much of what we used to attribute to God. I can only imagine he's pointing back to something like the what we saw in the Paulogia episode where, oh, we used to think that lightning was, you know, Thor throwing lightning bolts or whatever the case may be. This is such a caricature, and we need to do better than that. And so for those of you out there who are thinking things through, just recognize that a lot of what we're getting here are non-arguments. And beyond that, not only are they non-arguments, they're, they're ones that have just been answered a long time ago. Um, I'm baffled. The more we learn the less reason we have to believe in God. This is kind of the same as the last one, so no real need to respond. If you try to explain your religious mythology to someone who had never heard it before, you would sound crazy. Seriously, try explaining communion wafers to someone who's never heard of Catholicism. Okay, uh, I'm not Catholic, so I wouldn't try to do that. So we can push that one off to the side and let some Catholic YouTuber deal with that if he wants to, or she wants to. But I want to say this. Think about what he's saying. Try explaining your, your, your Christianity to someone who's never heard it before, how it would sound to them. Okay, well, if we just randomly selected a person, understand what we're saying. The vast majority of the world is believes in the supernatural or believes in some god or gods. I mean, uh, I, I'm not I'm not arguing that atheism is false because of the the limited number of people that hold to it, but atheism is an extremely small minority of the history of humanity. Not only of just the history of the world, but of the humans alive even just today. It's not us that are the weird ones in terms of the numbers here. You guys are the outliers. You guys are the anomalies. Um, it's it's not it's not you're the oddities, not us. So if we randomly selected a person and explained Christianity to them, they already have a lot of the features necessary in order to grasp some of the Christian concepts. Um, that's one of the reasons that the mission endeavor around the world has done so well and Christianity has grown so much is because 
most of the world already believes in the supernatural and believes in God. If you don't mean that, on the other hand, if you mean if we selected an atheist who's never heard of Christianity, well, they've already decided what they think about certain worldview issues. On the other hand, some atheists don't think it's ridiculous and they become Christians. So I don't know what you mean by this. If you mean let's select a person that has all of the information necessary to live a life but has never thought about worldview issues, what would they believe about it? I don't know and neither do you because such a person doesn't really exist. Let's continue. If God didn't exist, the world would look exactly the same way it does now. How do you know? Understand, this is uh, merely an assertion, and it's uh, you know it's it's a circular argument in a way because he's presuming that the world looks the way that it does now without God's involvement. You don't know what the world would look like if there were no God. Because if I'm right and there is a God and he does, and and if there is a God and he created the world as the creator, then to say what if he never existed would be saying nothing would exist. So you're begging the question too. So this is a really uh, this, this isn't saying anything at all. This is just him saying I'm right. That's <laughs> that's all that's all we're saying. Uh, so let's continue. If God existed, he would smite me right now. Okay, that is what we call divine psychology. This atheist is attempting to tell you, he's saying, I know the mind of God, the God that I don't think exists so well that I know what he would do if he did exist. There's certainly nothing in the Bible that says that God would necessarily smite you right now because you're spouting some stuff against God's existence. So are you just claiming that you just know that? You just you understand the mind of the God that doesn't exist, that you don't believe in better than Christians. Uh, enough that you know what he would do if he did exist. I mean, try to unpack that one. That makes absolutely no sense. And it certainly doesn't serve as any kind of argument against God. So we've come to the end of this video. I really enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed it. Again, um, if you see this one, uh, you, the person who made this, I enjoyed it. Maybe I'll do some more of your videos in the future. I have to say, I came off a little more energetic and um, maybe snarky in this video than I typically do. I'm sorry about that. I try to be really friendly and approachable. Um, but, uh, but uh, you know, I, I guess it's not so much about him. It's about the fact that I see stuff like this is really the stuff moving people and it's shocking to me and i think that we as human beings and individuals thinking people educated people in the 21st century the kind of people that have access um to youtube are the kind of people who can do better than this um, should not be moved by this sort of thing so i uh, hope you've enjoyed this video um you can check out the rest of what we have at youtube.com braxton hunter and again, maybe you want to support us on Patreon, and uh, you can do that at patreon.com slash trinityradio, and I'll catch you next time on Trinity Radio.